0: I have Sean Carter here, and I'm just honored to have him here on the show. Sean, thanks for being here.
1: Hey, Rod. Thanks for having me on here, and I'm just looking forward to our time of conversation tonight. Absolutely,
0: man. You got a bunch of cool information that when I found you, you were just like hitting nails on the head with topics that go under the radar. And I said to myself, this is definitely somebody... I want to listen to here for a little bit but then I want to talk with this guy. So it's an honor to have you on the show, man. You are a part of unveiling the paranormal, Christian alternative to the occult-based paranormal sites, right? You help people Absolutely. deal with real spiritual issues that they experience and you're exposing, you know, dark roots within this paranormal genre that is so popular today.
1: Absolutely. You know when I started uh, I started with Unveiling Paranormal Actually, I created the page and Facebook page, and uh, there's kind of a little bit of long story there, but I just created the page because some of what I do is outreach to to the paranormal community, whether it be ghost hunters, paranormal investigators, whether it be people just having paranormal experiences. I'm probably one of the very few full-time pastors right now that will even talk with people about the paranormal
0: This is really unique, man, because the traditional church that existed, in my opinion, prior to 2020, we don't see much of the fake church in full operation anymore. The real church, in my opinion, is now kicking in. But prior to 2020, when people would have these experiences that they could not explain, most pastors would send them, you know, you need to see a psychiatrist, right? Or you need to go to like yeah. a, in the Roman Catholic church who can do an exorcism. There was no sound advice that was given for the daily Christian that may struggle with dreams, hauntings. Well, I mean, anything. Right. I don't think any of us are exempt. I do believe if we're Holy Spirit filled, we cannot be um, possessed, but I don't think that doesn't mean we can't be harassed absolutely and uh, you know these topics are significant you're a pastor and you're in kentucky right
1: no i'm actually in the state of virginia southwestern virginia southwestern virginia okay,
0: okay.
1: yeah right on the uh, border between north
0: carolina and virginia yeah, there's a lot that goes on all across this country i know there's a couple hot spots that are in big topic right now you know people talking about area right I'm curious, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on, you know, geographical areas? Like the Bible talks about principalities, powers, rulers, and do you think that areas Mm -hmm. can actually have a certain type of haunting or continual type entity experienced with a location?
1: Well, first of all, that's a really great question, and I do believe that spirits do go to locations. But first of all, the biblical idea here is that these spirits roam the earth uh, looking and desiring and and just wanting to inhabit and cause destruction upon people. And so they roam everywhere. They're not coming from other locations like other planets and stuff. They're already here. But with that said, I do believe that they congregate just like evil congregates to to places where it's wanted, where it's uh, called and summoned. I believe that a lot of locations are haunted simply by the rituals or the sins that was committed at and in that location. So to me, you know, is kind of like loitering or they go where they're wanted and where they're glorified and where they can do the most destructive. And that makes complete
0: sense. I know when I spoke with L.A., He was talking about Salem, New Hampshire. There was a covenant of witches he would encounter near this American Indian Stonehenge. And he was saying to me, he's like, you know why they're gathering there. You know, they're drawn to these kind of places and sites for a reason. We didn't really get into it much further than that. And your response here is it makes sense. I mean, the Bible is the final say and it's, it's a gift, you know, it's, it's a supernatural document from outside the dimension of time, as Chuck Missler would say, right. You know, the the Bible is a supernatural document and thank God that we can go to it and it has the final authority. And we can look at these things and go, God, how do we deal with this? And what does your word say? Now you're a full-time pastor. I want to ask you, how did you start this journey, Sean? You know, what kind of led you to where you are today, man? Just walk us into how you became the Sean you are today.
1: Well, you know, my family growing up did not go to church. My dad was an alcoholic, and I, I remember gas cans going through windshields, just the violence and and the stuff through alcoholism. But I got to see God change that man from an alcoholic into a Sunday school teacher. And then, you know, I got started going to church more and more. I was baptized at 12 years old, but uh, through vacation Bible school, really, I started... Having experiences even before that point, I believe I'm not going to go into a lot of it, but I had spiritual encounterments with spirits and entities as a young child, as a teenager. That One of the major events in my teenage life, God actually showed me a supernatural encounterment when I was um, under the intoxication of some very powerful drugs. And it wasn't a drug-induced hallucination. It was actually God, in my opinion— pulling me out of my body and showing me the evil that was around me. And so that put a zeal in my heart. I went to church. Um, I started hearing the pastors talk about demons, angels, Jesus, God, hell. And so I had a healthy view of, of the scripture. Yet when I asked pastors and people questions about what I experienced, they didn't seem to have a clue. And so I, I kind of felt like maybe they were just kind of holding information back like there had to be a secret back room to Christianity that where they talked about these things and yet oh my gosh when, yeah <laughs> you know when I got to a point and I got older as a teenager uh, and a young adult God began to to pull me into ministry I started studying apologetics Walter Martin. I got involved with studying Walter Martin. I started studying the kingdom of the the cults. I I started going in. And because I also had family, extended family that was involved in what I would say a cult, the area I live in, you talk about areas that there is certain areas that are, you know, like you talked about the Indian mounds, but there's other areas that I live probably within two miles of a very well-known occult site, ritual site on the side of a mountain. It's actually called Witch's Mountain. It's actually where a lot of old time, and from the 1850s on, witchcraft was going out through the United States from this area. Even though my mom and dad wasn't involved, I had that peripheral spiritual warfare going on in the background. And as the Lord began to pull me into full time ministry, I started working with teenagers at my local church. I spent 17 years as a youth pastor. And during that time, God began to use me to pull people out of covens, out of witchcraft, uh, out of the OTO, out of Freemasonry, out of, you know, just you name it. That's where we're at. And so God just really began to use me in that area. Then I went into full-time pastor position and where I'm at right now. I also do Through the Black. I know you you interviewed Tom Dunn here. I work with those guys doing a YouTube exposing the paranormal. I work with SRA victims. I mean, you kind of name it in the deliverance ministry, putting down altars. I mean, you kind of name it. I'm doing it. So (laughs) kind of like boots on the ground.
0: I can only imagine how many things you've encountered or experienced in this field. I, I was talking with BDK about this. I thought it was awesome that the God of the Bible, the one who was mm-hmm. resurrected from the grave, he had one solution and one answer to all these ailments and problems that we face on this earth. But here the devil has I mean, like 50 different rabbit trails <laughs> you know, of how to get you snared or confused right. or you know some weird little thing to be a part of. And I just think it's it kind of proves that God's not panicking, <laughs>
2: you know? That oh,
0: absolutely. Pa- there's power in the word, there's power in his name. Man, like I said, when I was listening to you talk, for the first time, you were touching on some crazy topics, man. I'm like, wow. Would you be willing to share with me in the audience like a couple of the most extreme supernatural encounters that you had, whether it be like an exorcism or I don't know, like what kind of stuff do you deal with?
1: Well, I've I've had all kinds of encounterments, uh, obviously through deliverance ministry. That's kind of how it started out. The, you know, I don't like talking a lot about the deliverance type things, but I will share that. You know, I've seen the eyes turn black. I've seen the, the unknown tongues being spoken. I've had people tell me things about uh, the future. I've had, you know, demonic entities to, to manifest and all kinds of things. And I've seen some 50-foot uh, wide orbs. I know that a lot of people probably are tuning out now, but uh, you, you see these kind of entities. You see spiritual things. I've seen just... You probably name it and I've probably dealt with it. One of the most extreme cases that I've dealt with was a location that I was called to. I get a lot of calls, like I said, from from local people and from people who are dealing with spiritual things happening in and around their home. And they were seeing shadow people. And as soon as I walked on the property, one of the things I do is... Ask God to shut all the, the the spiritual stuff down. I don't want to deal with a, a levitating person. I don't want to deal with this stuff. I just want to get in there and lead people to the Lord and get rid of the darkness. Amen. The Lord began to say, "This is going to, you know, you just been put it in my heart. This is going to be a a long battle, but it'll be a, you know, it'll be a tough one, but it will be won. And you have to be careful." And so, as I was on the property, the manifestations were just going through the roof, and no matter what was happening, it just seemed like I, we couldn't get a grasp on it. And the Lord just put in my heart: there's a ritual site on the on the property. And so, I asked the the person, and they kind of their eyes went wide, and well, how did you know about that? And I said, well, that's not me; that's the Lord. And and finally, long story short, we destroyed that altar and in the midst of that destroying that altar, a lot of a lot of crazy things were being seen, but you know, the Lord prevailed and the darkness had to flee at his name. And you know, after we led the person through renunciation, through, you know, confession of sins, renunciation, and, and that we started burning all the occult stuff. And and God just took that situation and just, man, it was powerful. And so those are just kind of the typical things that we see. <laughs> so just a day at the office. <laughs> I mean, that sounds crazy. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I, I kind of get at least one or two calls, you know, every so a week or so. I mean, to deal with stuff like this. And it, to me, it's ramping up a little bit right now. I'm getting a lot more calls.
0: Yeah. So this is something real quick, Sean. When the Pope came to Philadelphia. I'm outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this is about Mm. what five or six years ago. It was like a big deal, man. There's like a million people that just came from the surrounding area into Philadelphia. Yeah. People are like going crazy. Right. And this is when I was really young in my belief. I remember, you know, I'm look, I'm watching on the news. I'm talking. I got friends in Philly. They're telling me what kind of what's going on. All these people are here. It's so peaceful. And I had such a disturbing, feeling in my spirit i felt Mm -hmm. something in the it felt like it was really high up in the air right but really heavy and like fake if you looked at it from a you know, secular quick glance, it would look like, oh, something spiritual's happening. This is cool. You know, right. oh, wow. All these people from all these different nations and tribes are flooding into Philadelphia and it's a peaceful gathering. But brother, I felt something disturbing in my spirit. And I don't say that to mm. beat up on the Catholic church. I, that's not my intention at all. I think they can swing just as hard at me as, as I ever could at them. What resonated with me during that experience was something very deep and dark was moving in the area. I mean, that's just what I felt. Like I said, I was so young in my walk then, not that I'm much further along now, but we can't help but bear witness to the things that really grab a hold of us. You know, I know there's some sects of Christianity today that you see some stuff go on and you're just like, oh my goodness, like that's not quite right. (laughs) You know, like, Nobody should be running around barking like a dog and touching people. And then they all start barking like dogs and the whole place is like going nutty. I I think that's a spirit of confusion. You know, when God says, I have not given you a spirit of confusion, but a sound mind of, he gives us wisdom. He gives us, Mm -hmm. you know, his expertise will momentarily allow us to even understand the situation. It's not of ourselves. But anyway, Right, man that sounds like a pretty interesting day at the office there i (laughs) it takes a special calling to do what you do not anybody can just jump up and say oh i'm gonna go do an exorcism or clean out this area i think god has to really be with you if you're gonna do that you know not like oh this would be cool let's give it a try (laughs)
1: Well, I think you're right in one way in the sense that I think you better be called and, and you better have a relationship with the Lord. But to be honest with you, I believe every Christian has the the calling to actually do what I do. In fact, that's what I do. I train pastors and lay people in the last two or three years. I've just been about trying to train people to do what I do. And if I'm called into a home, 90% of the time, I actually will have people saying well I'm seeing the demon behind you and I say well let's forget the demon let's talk Jesus let's let's get you can you know hooked up into Jesus let's get you get in the right way because guess what when I cast them out and I leave they're probably going to come back you need to learn how to deal with this yourself you need to learn how to walk with the Lord you need to be able to walk in your authority in the Lord and so that's kind of what I do 90 percent of what I do is discipleship to be honest with you Uh, It's just telling people about the relationship with Jesus Christ and how that they don't have to, you know, they don't they don't have to be scared of the demonic entity. And I don't want to go on a rant here, but I feel like I just need to say this real quick and I don't want to turn the the, the discussion. But one of the things I feel very important about is a lot of people we kind of hit on this. A lot of people think that. Because I'm in deliverance ministry, that we're always hunting for demonic entities. Look, because there's nobody doing what I'm doing right now, uh, yeah, a lot of my speaking, a lot of what I do is dealing with the paranormal. But really, the big deal is, is if we would not real, if we would realize, number one, there's not a demon behind every rock. okay. Now, I, I'm going to give an illustration on this. And after I give this illustration, I'll turn it back over to you. It's snake hunting. I had a boss one time who was called a lot by people because he could, you know, where we live, there's a lot of water motskins, a lot of snakes around and around the branches and creeks and stuff. So they would call him. And one day he said, hey, let's go snake hunting. And so on the way over there, he was like, this guy's called me. He's got children wanting to play down to creek. They want to make sure that we kind of get the snakes off. And we're going to look through the rocks and stuff. And I was like, rocks? Yeah. He says, yeah, turn the rocks over. Now, Sean, understand that there's not a snake under every rock. So you don't have to be afraid. But guess what, Sean? There may be a time where you will turn a rock over and there will be a snake. There's what you got to know what to do. And he began to teach me what to do about snake hunting. And so so I kind of liken that to dealing with the darkness, dealing with the paranormal. A lot of the situations I go to, there's not a demonic entity. It's just sin nature that we're dealing with. But if there's something there, guess what? We're going to deal with it. And I train the people how to deal with that. And so that's kind of what we do on on a given situation. So I'll just kind of throw it back to you there.
0: That is. An awesome story, man. Like that makes so much sense. Uh, I couldn't agree more that the fact that you know your cup holders that were your grandmoms are not possessed, and that's why you know the door opens by itself (laughs) in your house. Like I don't think that's right. Right. But man, what an illustration uh, showing the snake hunter from down south. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. We look at the word God reminds us in Proverbs eighteen: the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth unto it and they're safe. This is true. You know, I, I've listened to other podcasts. I, I'm interested in the topic of Bigfoot and aliens because I believe that it's it's all one camp. I just believe that they put many different masks on and, and they meander and parade through with different images to just cause distraction, disruption. I hear a lot of people say that, well, my grandma went to church and I remember hearing the name of Jesus. And when this thing came close, I said, Jesus, help me. And it froze and got wide eyed. <laughs> you know, And I'm
2: like,
1: hmm. Right. Absolutely.
0: When we're terrified, you know, God is on the throne. And it reminds me also, the scripture says a broken and a contrite spirit. The Lord doesn't reject. If you're saying, oh, Jesus, when you're dealing with something, you're saying, God, like, are you there? Are you real? I need your help. And it just makes right. me think, it just makes me think, you know, because that name carries power and weight. No matter where you go, like nobody's going around saying in the name of Buddha, be gone or, you know, or Allah or like that just doesn't right. work. It's just not even a thing. Right. But yeah, it's, it's cool because like, like you're saying, and I, and I agree, and I didn't really look at it that way, but us as Christians, it is our job to deal with these things. And you're so right about the discipleship part it's like you're not witch hunting right you're not going out and let, let's dig some werewolves out of the field and and burn them tonight boys like no you're going out and you're discipling people and you're talking about the lord and you're being bold and unashamed of the gospel and along the way just right. like in the bible you're going to encounter some of these spirits i think of the the apostle paul got worn out after a couple of days of this uh woman right who keeps saying Here's the servant of the most high God. He's getting annoyed. So finally cast whatever the spirit was out of her. And then the guys are all upset because they're like, that was our moneymaker. She was a fortune teller. You know, I mean, that's in the right. New Testament, guys. Hello, that's in there. If you're listening, that's in your <laughs> Bible. But in the book of Job, he has an encounter with an entity in the middle of the night. 412. Job 412, the hair on his body stands on end. Right? An entity, or right. I forget the wording there. I guess it depends on the translation you're listening to, but it moves past him. You know, he's frozen in fear. The thing whispers to him something along the lines of, Can a righteous man be stronger than his creator? I, I mean, it's, it's in the Bible to see these things continually pop up as time goes on, not that it's our focus. And Sean, that's where you hit the nail on the head. That's what the church, I think, also needs to look at. We need to evaluate exactly what we're talking about tonight and we need to come get together get rid of those religious strings that are causing people to point fingers at each other and say i'm right you're wrong we're wrong you're right whatever right and we need yeah. to just look at the bible because these things are going to come up eventually but we don't make a full-time ministry on hey did you see any lights in the sky man i mean i talk with people <laughs> about stuff brother i'm willing to go down the rabbit trail but i always bring it back to the lord because one of my things is like listen all of these things are under the submission of Christ. None of these things supersede who he is. When he says he literally has allotted principalities, powers, and rulers, I mean, these th- th- I believe there was fallen angels, right? I believe in Genesis 6-4 really, yeah. when it says that the ben elohim you know, they fell, okay, they disrobed of their former state, and they came and took wives and gave birth to the Nephilim or the you know, I've heard people say, well, that means the earthborn, or it's gigantus in the Greek. It means giant or earth born. And it's like, listen, something really weird <laughs> happened and the outcome wasn't good. And God's telling us about it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and um, absolutely we can see the evidence of it being there. Now Sean, jump in and tell us a little bit about what ministry life looks like right now. How was 2020? How did that treat you guys? Did you have any weird restrictions? Tell us about church life down south and what are you guys working on right now? What is something cool that's on the horizon that you're a part of?
1: Well, as far as the actual physical church that I'm a pastor of right now, we've we're actually running a little bit better numbers than we was pre-COVID. You know, we we're doing a lot more teaching on the internet, which has actually brought us more people inside of the church physically here locally. We only closed for two weeks, you know, when we thought that the that bodies were dropping in the streets of China and, and all those places. We thought we might ought to check it out and be careful, but when we realized what was happening, we, we kind of started coming back to church and, you know, we took precautions, but yet we got involved with just preaching the gospel, teaching like we always have, doing more things online. Now that's kind of dealing with the, the physical church, but I believe God also kind of, you know, in 2020, I started working with Tom Dunn and Through the Black. Uh, Tom had met with me a few times down in, once in North Carolina. And, you know, I talked to him on the phone and he's like, dude, I really think what, what you're doing with the paranormal. See, one of the things that I do is I said a while ago, is I go to paranormal conferences I do paranormal shows. What I try to do is bring the Christian perspective to the table. One of the things I think that has happened is the church has been, you know, had the disco lights in it. We've got all the the trappings, but we don't talk about spiritual things in our community. And when some somebody's having a problem with the spirit, we kind of roll our eyes and say, that's go get a shrink or go to get, you know, go somewhere else. But what we try to do is engage people with real spiritual talk. So Tom was like, hey, come on and do do what you're doing with Through the Black. Obviously, Through the Black has a lot more subscribers than than I could ever imagine getting just with my little old self. So I started working with Tom, and we do a lot more content like that. As far as what we're working on right now, uh, God has wanted me to do more and more what I call freedom revivals which means I basically just go in and start preaching, casting out demonic entities, talk about healing, talk about the Lord, disciple the Lord, do prayer drives in the community, uh, prayer walking, dealing and confronting the the dark powers in that community, dealing with the Freemasonry, dealing with the witches, dealing with the covens. Every community has them. And, And let me just say this, when we talk about high capacity, high volume places like the Mounds. Forget that. You've got them right there in your town. You've got them right there a lot of times in your church. 62% of people sitting in church right now carry a new age belief of some sort. So folks, it's right there. It's in your face. You You have a missions field right there. And that's what I've been doing is training people uh, kind of turning the corner now with what we are got to do in the future. I know Tom's got some projects in the works as far as Through the Black, but what I'm doing is just doing the, the Freedom Encounters right here locally, doing a lot of counseling with SRA victims, doing a lot of uh, engaging with the paranormal community. So um, my next show this week, I do a show every Thursday night on Through the Black. And also you can go to Unveiling the Paranormal YouTube page, just type it in. You'll find my old ugly mug on there. And uh, you can, and I got like close to 40 or 50 videos right now. You can just go see the past shows. But next week's show, I'm actually going to start dealing with the topic of the UFO. I haven't really dealt with the UFO topic. So in the next few weeks, I'm going to start dealing with the UFO from a biblical standpoint, and go into some very interesting topics. So people can check that out. (laughs) So, Sean, probably
0: be releasing this episode around that same time. I spoke with Drew Graffia and L.A. Marzulli, where I'm going to be interviewing both of them again here on the show. And we're going that direction where we believe the UFO phenomena is stronger than ever. People are waking up to it. I agree with L.A. and his work his diligent work over all these years of taking that biblical stance on the great deception. Right. Like Chuck Missler would say, this is a managed agenda. You know, <laughs> we, we can see the, the events Absolutely. that are transpiring yeah. here are definitely not by accident. Let's talk a little bit about that because it's going to be cool. I, I plan on dropping your episode and then, you know, I'm hoping it, it works mm-hmm. out with L.A. And then I got some other awesome people lined up. That I'm, I'm hinting towards that t- that idea and topic and have been, because I believe we're coming to the end of that disclosure that was in the COVID bill, where they were gonna, I don't know, mm-hmm. release all this information to the public about unidentified aerial phenomenon and what let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. What are your thoughts on, you know, the government concealing these things from the people for possibly so mm-hmm. long, all the way back beyond Roswell? And what is your approach when we're taking a biblical stance if you were talking with somebody at a UFO conference? What kind of language right. would you be using? What are your thoughts on Well, there? unfortunately,
1: unfortunately in the Christian community, there's so many divisions with this that so I'll just kind of very quickly give my my understanding with this. Now you'll have one camp in the Christian community that there's Every single alien and every single UFO incident is a demonic entity, and, and that's kind of where I kind of stand for the most part. At the same time, I also give the even though I don't believe, and I'll, I'll preference this next part I don't believe that there's extraterrestrials on other planets, I think we're it, okay, however. I don't think that we should shut the door of the possibilities necessarily that there may be other life forms out there. We know in the scriptures, there's seraphim, cherubim, ophanim, or, you know, ophanim, depends how you want to pronounce that. And we know that there's entities that's being described in the heavenly realm that, that, you know, if we met them right here on earth we would say, you know, that's a funky looking dude. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, you know, we know that there's there's things out there. Now, some people want to debate extra dimensional and all that. I personally believe that we must put everything out there as a dark entity, because one of the reasons why one of my ministry points in dealing with the paranormal and when I'm dealing with a ghost hunter or if I'm dealing with somebody with a UFO topic, here's my main thing. The, The Bible says that. We are not to talk with the dead, nor are we to talk with spirits. Deuteronomy 18, we, we look at Leviticus 22. We look at a lot of these scriptures. But we must realize one of the reasons why that God says that, number one, is that it is possible to talk to these entities. It is possible to talk with the dead. If it wasn't be so, the Lord wouldn't say, don't do it. So there's a reason why he says, don't do it. The reason I believe and we see throughout the scripture is that we cannot divine or, or tell what kind of entity that we're talking to. We can't tell, uh, just like you pointed out, Job chapter four. If we look at Job chapter four, verse 12, this guy was influenced by a spirit. Now, get that. He was influenced by a spirit and influence so much that he is now giving advice to his friend. However wrong it is, he's still using that encounter. And I see so many people doing that today. They're they're listening to these entities and 99.9.5 are going to tell you something against God, against the Bible, They'll put that one little percent in there that may even sound a little Christian so that the Christians will even buy it. And and I hope that makes sense. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit right here and just say, and I'll probably make some people mad with this statement. But I think of what the government's doing right now, the COVID bill. Listen, they have put CIA operatives out there. I'm not going to name names, but there's people who have claim that they're CIA operatives, they've worked with ATIP. All this stuff is a false disclosure, getting people hyped up, getting the UFO community community hyped up. They're giving them a bone for what they're doing. We have technology out there that is blowing people's minds. I believe they're just, you know, I, I love listening to like the Black Vault and some of these other guys who's kind of been on the fence and saying, you know, folks, let's let's be careful how we, and this is my approach, and, and I kind of throw it back to you. You know, we better be careful that we don't fall in, you know, all these years, don't trust the CIA, don't trust the government, don't trust what the government's saying, and then all of a sudden, we're championing their supposed disclosure? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. So I'll just kind of throw it back to you there.
0: This is why I do what I do. I love talking with people like you. I love finding brothers in the Christ, you know, that are elbows or knees or forearms, biceps that have a special ability and strength that was, they're a part of the design to uncover and to work against that for the glory of God. But there's a million messages and signals of confusion and chaos, just whipping around out there in the wind and, and everybody's clinging on to one or the other, or maybe 10 of them, or if you're a Buddhist, maybe you have a thousand gods that you worship. It, it, all this stuff is just going right. This is one, that, you know, this alien deception, in my opinion, is one where they put in so much backstore backlog effort into and have so many different platforms ready to all broadcast at the same time with the confirmation of the idea um, they have a story for, in my opinion, for all of it. You know, it's a part of my theory, Sean. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm moving a little fast. I'm a little excited right now because I feel, I feel that this is going to be a um, something that in five years from now people are going to look back at and be like, "Man, that kid was on to something." You know, that guy Sean was on right. to something. Okay, they they weren't let astray yeah. yeah. in what their inklings were, okay, or what their their ideas were here. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they blamed COVID-19 as like alien biological warfare right? Like, Oh, that's mm-hmm. why it was all the, you know, weird, you know, big worldwide thing. Cause we thought China released it, but then China really didn't. And they thought it was a meat mark, you know, and they're just going to play this narrative out. And then I think they're going to come out and say, this is the first time we've had an alien race try to, I don't know, maybe poison us mildly, dumb us down a little bit, you know, for their approach, be- right. because there's good ones and bad ones battling in the heavens. know the Bible very clear. There's a battle in the heavens. Look at when you know, one of the one of the archangels is there and they're disputing over the body of Moses. You know, the, the angels are like the Lord rebuke mm-hmm. you, you know, you see Satan there. So th- there's disputes, there's battles in the heaven. There's principalities and powers that are clashing. We know the story of Daniel when he's praying for 21 days, the angel shows up. He's like, yo, dude, got held up. We were, you know, fighting against these guys, had to call in a higher recruit than me. You know, Michael had to come down and right. open up some doors for me to get through because God heard your prayer on the first day. So we know there's a battle in the heavens. And I think that disconnect, Sean, the disconnect from the modern church to understanding the supernatural realm as the Bible depicts it surrendering our experiences to it and saying, God, what do I do with this? I need some clarity on this thing that I experienced or seen, whether it be a light in the sky or some dream or whether you have the gift of prophecy and and God's using your mouth to speak things that are yet to come to pass. I, you know, all these different things. It, it, we could spend hours kind of just compartmentalizing everything. But really what I'm getting at here is the enemy has put in this equal amount of time Like secretly, like they've been meandering through in the background, you know, kind of erecting all these ideas and platforms in order to launch the great deception. Now, we can't say verbatim, unless you're a prophet who God gives you the word, that it's going to happen this way at this time. But we as the body, as watchmen, as Christians can kind of go I see it coming. You know what I mean? Like, like I may not wow, have everything absolutely. down hundred percent, but man, I see the fastball it's winding up. It's heading this direction. I just don't know if it's going to be a curveball ball or a straight liner. And that's kind of what I think the church needs to wake up to because I don't want to dispute and argue with people about your hermeneutics, right? And a well, my eschatology yeah. tells me this. I just want to go, Hey, listen, is Jesus Lord and savior? He is. What are you dealing with? Okay, Sean, we got a job for you buddy because I don't really deal with uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm there. I'm right. praying with that's you right. or whatever. Or Rod, you know, you're kind of laid back. You, you I, I get all the time. I do well with younger people. I'm going to be 33 this mm-hmm. month. I you know, I look at my stats on the show. You know, like 42% of my downloads are coming from millennials. And here I am with the Millennial right. Must-See Podcast. So that's a generation of people where we need to just be raw, organic and get in and say, "Guys, I, you know, I'm not ashamed of this. Do you have an ear to hear? Because this, this stuff is going right. down and the great deception is on the horizon. In my opinion, I am not a doomsday guy. I, I hear people say all the time, you know, a lot of the same people who said Trump was going to win are saying the end of the <laughs> age is here. It's going to end next. And listen, Hey, you know, this is a take maybe people didn't think about Sean. Maybe those profits are right. And Trump gets in 2024 and it's a landslide. Remember them saying he was going to win back to back. They, they just said right. two terms, okay? They'll say impeach. He won't be impeached. Okay, well, that came to pass. First term, obviously, is already done. Maybe a second term's on the horizon. I don't know. I, I'm not going to say you prophets were wrong, but but there's a lot of stuff going on out there. And the Bible says to, to test every spirit, you know, to go back to the root right. of here's the word of God. What's really going on? What is my gift? If your gift is talking and podcasting, if your gift is deliverance, if your gift is just... Literally simply sitting with people in their living room and reading through the scriptures and wrestling through ideas, water some seeds and, and plant some seeds, whatever you guys have to offer. Like BDK said in the last episode, listen, all hands on deck.
1: Well, no, I think what you you hit on something and, and one of that I try to tell folks, you know, I really don't care what the mark of the beast is. I don't really know. You know, there's so many different ideas of eschatology, like you said, What I do know is, is we have a generation of young people, you know, from from the age of six to the age of 100 that is looking for real spirituality. And the church hasn't been given it. The church has been focused on the disco lights, the cafe coffees. They've been focused on these things. They've left the conversation in the community with real spiritual warfare, real spiritual needs. I'm talking with teenagers that has been involved in meditation. They're here at school. They learned how to meditate in yoga in their school system. And now they're hearing voices. Now they're hearing and seeing figures. And they really don't have a, you know, they they thought it was cool at the beginning. But now these things are starting to take them over in their life more and more without their knowledge. They're waking up not realizing where they're at and they're wanting to help. And the pastors out there are rolling their eyes when we're sitting here talking with with a teenager who's crying because they've been abused by a a teacher, satanically ritually abused by a teacher. Folks, it's time that we begin to realize spiritual warfare is not hunting demons. Spiritual warfare is about helping people come out of darkness. And and the darkness also is happening inside of the prophecy stuff. If you're focused more on who, when, and where the Antichrist is coming out instead of discipling people on how to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we've got a problem. If you're caring more about the UFO problem, yeah, I talk about people with UFOs, but listen, my whole goal here is to bring them back to, to the gospel. The show that I'm getting ready to do next week is going to deal with the—because the, I hear a lot of atheists and a lot of people throw this stuff out. And it's halfway true in a sense because there's so many Christians. If If an actual ET event did happen, if we actually did have a real live demonic entity set down— and manifest itself and come out like L.A. Marzulli says, you know, come on out on the, the lawn and say, we're here. Most Christians will leave their faith because they're not rooted in Christ. They're rooted in some eschatology or they are rooted in some kind of stuff, but they're not rooted in Christ. So what I want to talk about this week, next coming week and next Thursday night, is I want to talk about the idea of How do you deal with these ideas of spiritual entities manifesting? Whether you want to call it an ET, whether you want to call it a demon or a Nephilim, I don't really care what you call them. How will you deal with your religion? How will you deal with your Savior? And 90% of the Christians I talk to, they don't have a clue. They haven't even thought about it this far yet. And so what I want to do in this conversation that I want to have Thursday night, is be able to just to say, guys, ladies, let's stop for just a moment and realize that the Bible does te- touch on these subjects, and it teaches us not to waver, not to be tossed around by vain philosophies, but be solid in Jesus Christ. Very well said, Sean. Do you
0: have any final statements you'd like to share with the audience as we wind down to the end of this episode?
1: Well, folks, I just want to, first of all, encourage you, you know, if, you, if you're if you having issues with the paranormal spirit stuff, you don't really need me. You really don't need another pastor. You really just need Jesus Christ in your life. And where can people find you, Sean? Unveiling the Paranormal. If you type in Unveiling the Paranormal on your Google search or Facebook page, you know, uh, YouTube, I have YouTube and Facebook, Unveiling Paranormal. You can also go to Through the Black. Uh, if you need me, you can contact me. You can also maybe look me up on the Internet, Sean Carter Ministries. Thank you, Rod, for allowing me to be here and to share with you again. Anybody needs help, they can just contact me and maybe contact you. that we'll go from there. And I know we all
0: wrestle. You know, me personally, man, I deal with a bad attitude. I stub my toe. I get angry. I deal with all the same things everybody else does. But the remedy here is to strive and to believe in our hearts that God has a plan for our lives and that something greater he can work out in us. So that's it. That's the show, everybody. Thank you for being here. If you found this episode to be helpful, interesting, educational, whatever, entertaining, share it with a friend. God bless America.
1: And good night. hello folks this is princess you are listening to the millennial mustard seed podcast thanks for listening don't forget to share with your friends
0: you guys i'm so happy that you're back here with me again tonight this is your host rodney Thank you for being here with the Millennial Mustard Seed podcast. I got a really good episode in store for you tonight. I have Derek Gilbert here from A View from the Bunker, Sci Friday, Skywatch TV. I know you guys have heard of him. Listen, he's a wealth of information. This is a really exciting episode. Derek even talks about a potential Dogman experience that he might have had at his house in the Ozarks. This is a wild roller coaster ride of an episode. Thank you for being here. Let's jump right into the show, guys. So, Derek, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Millennial Mustard Sea Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for being here. That's an honor. I, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. It's uh, fascinating.
0: This is going to be uh, quite the ride for me and the audience. Derek, this was a news line from yesterday. I'm pretty sure you had to have heard about this, but there's a strange, mysterious metal monolith that was discovered in remote Utah. Yeah, Any thoughts yeah. on that? Did you get a chance to look into that yet?
2: Talked a little bit with uh, Steve Quayle about that yesterday. In fact, that'll be an interview that will be oh, wow. on uh, Skywatch TV tomorrow. Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, this was dropped into a slot canyon in a rural uh, it remote part of the Utah desert. And I'm not really sure what to make of it. I know that there are some out there who say, well, it must be aliens. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. But why would somebody do that? Steve's got a thought that maybe this is something that um, some agency within the government is using to monitor behavior of some sort from entities of some kind. So oh, wow. that, that's a possibility. That's interesting. Um, it might, it, it might be somebody's idea of a, a uh, tribute to uh i don't know Stanley Kubrick or Arthur C Clarke I don't know but the monolith mm-hmm. from 2001 a space odyssey was was black and uh, kind of a matte finish this is uh, this is made of stainless steel which uh, you know when I left mm-hmm. the metals business back in 20 <laughs> in 2015 yeah that's that's a lot of money to drop into something like that i mean stainless steel isn't cheap especially if you're going to finish it out and you know machine it the way they did that's a big piece of stainless steel to just drop into the desert where nobody's going to see it except a bunch of sheep wandering around loose. And that's how the Utah, (laughs) uh, uh, the the state of Utah found it. There were some uh, folks there with their, uh, I don't know, Department of Wildlife, I guess, counting sheep. And they saw this thing reflecting sunlight back at them. So they landed the copter and got a shot of it. The, The part of Utah that they're in looks like Jordan. It looks like ancient Moab. Um, or Edom. It looks like ancient Edom, actually. Uh, It looks similar to Wadi Rum, which is that uh, red desert southeast of the Dead Sea. Um, I honestly don't know what to make of it. I I don't think it's extraterrestrial. I don't think we have any serious evidence of extraterrestrial visitation, but we certainly have plenty of evidence of inhuman visitation over the centuries. I I don't think this is it, but I honestly, I can only speculate.
0: What do you think about you know, Sasquatch or Dogman, people having all these different sightings with modern day cryptids. I know the book of Enoch talks about the mixing of animals Mm -hmm. with, you know, other animals and and strange things like that. The Greeks, I was reading, there's a creature called the Cynocephaly which uh, I think it means the head of a dog on a man. Mm -hmm. And some of these reports I was reading about, even ancient explorers all the way up to 400 years ago would talk about going to Africa and to India and encountering these creatures that had the lower body of a man, but the head of a dog. Some of them were reported to be very hostile, cannibalistic, things of that sort. It mm-hmm. doesn't get too much attention. I do listen to some other podcasts and follow things that pertain to Sasquatch and Dogman. I think there's something interesting going on there. There's a lot of people reporting sightings on these creatures. What is your take on that?
2: It's certainly possible. I don't discount it. I mean, 25 years ago, I would have thought, nah, this is just nah, all bogus, but I, I don't discount it anymore. Um simply because you you have to admit the possibility of the supernatural if you are a Christian. Um, So I I do. Uh, What are they? I don't know. I've got good friends who are otherwise rational, productive human beings who believe that they're real and uh, claim to have met people who tell credible stories of encountering these things. We've had a a weird experience here. uh, We've not We've not heard this thing recently, but uh, there've been a number of times here at our home in the Ozarks where we will hear what appear to be human footsteps on the roof of our of our home. Uh, it's it's clearly a biped because it's not a it's not a quadrupedal footstep, um, and you can tell by the weight on the decking of the roof, that it's something that, you know, is is fairly substantial. It's not a bird, in other words. Uh, we're not close enough to the trees that it would be a cat. And again, the footstep is bipedal. Uh, Sharon had heard this several times, and I thought, okay, well, maybe. But, you know, maybe you were dreaming and you heard something. Until one night, I heard it too. I heard a thump on the roof like something had landed on it. And then I heard footsteps as though something was running from just above our bedroom towards our garage.
1: And then mm-hmm. a guest in
2: our home heard the same thing. We also had an incident one morning where we were having a light rain outside and, uh, you know, springtime, just kind of a mist, a drizzle. And uh, we uh, suddenly heard a thump, thump, thump on the roof. And what the heck was that? So I went to look and noticed that the uh, the, the umbrella that we have, you know, in the uh, over the patio table, the patio umbrella was gone. Like, okay, what now? What's that about? Normally, we put it down when the, when it gets windy because uh, the wind can kick up a bit and it will carry that thing, even with the twenty five pound iron stand at its base. Uh, it was gone, and so I looked around, found it. It was in the front yard. Now there was very little wind out there. It was not the, because. The uh, little floral arrangements, you know, the fake flowers in these little baskets that Sharon had put out on the patio table for decoration, they hadn't been disturbed. Yeah. If it had been enough wind to carry that umbrella and lift it over the front of the house, those would have been down in the yard as well. So what lifted that out and through? And that happened twice, actually, with that that patio umbrella. It lifted it out of the 25-pound iron stand at the base and flung it to the other side of the house. Don't know what it was. Uh, but it wasn't the wind. So do I think something like a, a dog man or something might've done it? I have no idea, but I'm not going to discount the possibility that they exist. A lot of people are having
0: experiences as I believe we grow towards the end of this age. Something happened to me. One of my cars, the starter had failed. I'm over at my mother's house and I'm laying there in the driveway replacing the starter. She's sitting out there talking with me. Well, in broad daylight, I see an orb, float. It must have been about fifty feet off the ground, Eric. And the thing gracefully floated. And I'm not talking about dandelions or you know a bubble or something like that. This was an orb. It didn't quite pulsate, but it had like an intelligent movement to it. Hmm. And this was very strange for me. I'm laying under the car. It's about ten thirty in the morning, and I say, "Mom, look at that. Do you see that?" So she stands up to look. But the sun was in her eyes. But because I was laying under the car, I was able to peer out. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm explaining to my mom what I seen, uh, I didn't feel any fear or anxiety about that just was very curious. I'm like, wow. So I didn't really want to tell many people just that was an interesting experience for me. Well, Derek, it was only about two months later. And my stepdad races motorcycles. Mm. They have a couple sheds in a garage about 50 yards off the back of the house and they have security cameras set up there because there is a public walking trail that goes along the Schuylkill river. That's not too far at all from where these sheds and garages are. Well, my mom and stepdad are sitting in the house and they both get an alert on their phone that the camera has picked something up. Hmm. They both at the same time, watch an orb. This thing is just floating, right? Right in the driveway and glides by and kind of picks up and just scoots on through the whole video frame. I mean, it's like 10 seconds. Hmm. And uh, I know my stepdad then, you know, we kind of chatted with him and me and my mom were like, well, I, I seen an orb in broad daylight, uh, just a few months prior. I didn't make a big deal about it. Kind of just let it go. You know, I didn't want people to think I was too weird, but now here we have an orb on video. And I think it's interesting. A friend of mine, Tony Merkel, who has the Confessionals podcast, I was chatting with him recently and we're hanging out and we're talking. He was telling me about a supernatural experience he had with somebody he believes was trying to put a curse or a hex on him. They, they tried to coax him to come over and they said, oh, we want to hear about the Bible. And Tony, who's a Christian, but he interviews people who have strange supernatural encounters. He's like, okay. So he finally makes plans to come over to this guy's house and You know, the guy ends up being a whack job, you know, telling him there's ghosts in the house and all the strange stuff. Tony's kind of like, I got to get out of here, man. You know, I thought you wanted to hear the gospel. This isn't what you made it seem to Mm -hmm. be. It's in the same neighborhood that (laughs) these orbs. I don't know if there's a connectivity there, but I think it's interesting. Um, I heard even L.A. say, hey, there was a covenant of witches. In Salem, New Hampshire, when he was up there at the American Indian Stonehenge, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you see covenants of witches gathering around these ancient megalithic structures. There's got to be a connection. Yeah. In today's day and age, a lot of these things just go under the radar for the masses. People don't really understand what the Bible's saying and that there's an enemy that is warring against our soul.
2: Well, and and sadly, the church is not prepared for it because most in the church don't recognize it. No, you're right. Um, One of the things that really startled me was uh, a couple of months ago when – Abraham Hamilton III, who does a daily radio program for American Family Radio, really went into some detail and, and played video from or played the audio clips from a, a video interview that was recorded back in June between the uh, co-founder of uh, Black Lives Matter and the head of the uh, Los Angeles chapter talking about how their work is really spiritual more than racial. It's really a spiritual work. And uh-huh. describing what they do, this uh, ritual, there's no other word for it, that they perform when they get together, where they say the name, say their name, and they repeat these names and call them out. Well, you know, I hadn't paid much attention to it. I thought, well, this is just like when at nine eleven we repeat recite the names of the victims to, you know, honor the dead and and just so that we don't forget who they are. Well, they said, no, no, it's more than that. When they're saying the name, they are—they believe they are literally summoning the spirits of the dead so that the spirits of the dead can work through them to accomplish the work that they're trying to do. More than that, they pour out a libation, a drink offering for them when they do this. Now, that really rang a bell for me because that was a key element of the ancient Amorite ritual called Kispum where they summoned the spirits of their ancestors, which had to be done every month on the 30th of the month, which in a lunar calendar is the night when there's no moon. I mean, even 4,000 years ago, they understood. The night with no moon is a night when the veil is the thinnest between the worlds. This was the responsibility of the eldest son of the family, the, the heir of the family estate. He had to take over this ritual and summon the family well the the spirits of the ancestors, but they were considered the family gods the the teraphim that uh, jacob's father-in-law had the family gods that uh, his wife Rachel stole that's what these were for. this monthly ritual where you had to summon the ancestors and then you would feed them. Scholars have broken down the ritual from texts that have been dug out of the sand in ancient Syria, from ancient Syria, from ancient Iraq. The uh, Amorites brought this into Mesopotamia when they emigrated there around the 23rd, 24th century BC. They would take bread and literally smear bread on the faces of these little statues representing their dead ancestors to feed them. And then they would pour out a drink offering, a libation. The son who was responsible for this was literally called the pourer of water or the son of the cup. And this was such an important thing that people who didn't have children would make would would uh, contract to people who would perform this ritual after their death because it was believed that if you died and you didn't have your descendants, if your descendants didn't perform this ritual, you were condemned to starve for all eternity. You would live on dust and clay if your mm. descendants did not perform this ritual. So here you've got in the 21st century on the streets of America, these people who are following the leaders of, of what they believe is a racial justice movement and believe that they're just performing a ritual to m- remember those who have fallen in violent encounters with the police when instead what the organizers of this organ- of this group are doing in their minds is literally summoning these spirits, pouring out a drink offering to them, and then concluding the ritual by saying, Ashe. Ashe comes from the... Uh, religion of the yoruba people of nigeria and is part of their religion uh I, I forget the name of it off the top of my head but it is the uh, basically it's the wellspring from which we get the uh, religions in the new world uh, voodoo and um oh there there's another that uh, is is similar to it um that i'm forgetting it uh, the, the chicago white Sox manager back in 05 uh, when they won the world series uh Gian was a uh, practitioner of it but anyway uh this is a a religion that is literally dealing with the spirits of well demonic spirits just like the ancient amorites who believed that they were venerating the dead just like the ancient greeks and romans when they venerated the heroes were literally venerating the spirits of the nephilim the origin of demons as we showed in veneration believed by the early church for the first 400 years after the resurrection it was the default Understanding, It was the, the consensus of the early church that demons originated from the spirits of the Nephilim. This is described in the book of First Enoch. Um, again, it was Augustine who kind of got us off that track and uh, got us to a... No, no, no. It was the, the righteous sons of Seth who uh, married the wicked daughters of Cain. That's what Genesis 6 was all about. It's like, no, no. That... That was not the understanding of the early church. That's the Sethite view, right? That's the Sethite view. That was not the understanding of the early church. When you read what the early church fathers wrote about the origin of demons, the consensus view for the first four centuries after the resurrection was that those were the spirits that proceeded, the hybrid spirits that proceeded from the the, the children of the sons of God, the Elohim, or the watchers, and the daughters of men. And we have gotten away from that uh, for the last 1,600 years. Thank you, Augustine. Brilliant theologian, but wrong on that point. But a key point on which to be wrong. Because now we see things like the Day of the Dead celebration in Mexico as nothing more than a cute cultural thing that Mexicans do to just honor the spirits of their ancestors. No, I'm sorry, but it's messing with demons and it's a, it's a practice that goes back more than 4,000 years to ancient Mesopotamia. And the Black Lives Matter co-founder, the head of the Los Angeles chapter, openly admit that that's what they're doing. They are performing this ritual on the streets of America today when they say the name. In fact, there's a video out there that people can find of um, uh, Dr. Uh, Malina Abdullah, who's the uh, L.A. chapter uh, head, performing this ritual and pouring out the drink offering inside a Methodist church in, in Hollywood. And the people there in the church are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're you're making offerings to demons here. Nobody's just no, no big deal. No big deal, because we don't understand what we're dealing with in modern day America. The interesting thing to me is that, uh, and I'm not an expert on the history of the Yoruba people, but as I understand it, they emigrated west from the area of uh, Sudan around the uh, 8th or ninth century AD because they were pushed out by uh, uh, Arab Muslims who were expanding their territory from Arabia. And uh, so they may well have been in that uh, circle of cultural contact with uh, the ancient Amorites going back, you know, maybe a thousand years earlier um, and, and uh, picked up on the the practice then, and then just brought it to West Africa when they emigrated. So, but whether it was physically through physical contact that way, or just through contact from the spirit realm, the principalities and powers who intercede and intervene in human affairs, That ritual is now taking place in 21st century America on our city streets. Now, does that mean that these demons are being given more power because they're people doing the rituals? No, they've only got as much power as God is going to allow them to have. What it does say, though, is that there are more people here in America today who are giving those spirits permission to enter into them and work through them. And that's resulted in what we've seen is like the the most costly period of violent protest in american history the protests connected to antifa and black lives matter in 2020
0: yeah this year has been like (laughs) no other time in my lifetime no (laughs) (laughs) we wait patiently because we know the lord is going to crack the sky like a supernova he's going to pull back the Mm -hmm. veil it's clear to see that the spiritual darkness is in overtime right now they're in overdrive just doing everything they can I want to ask you about the Divine Council. Now, I know you said you spoke with Mike Kaiser before. I'm aware of some of his work. I mm-hmm. kind of listen to a little bit of the Naked Bible podcast from time to time. He moves very quickly and covers a lot of deep ground. Share with me in the audience about
2: the Divine Council. The, the Divine Council is a concept that was well known in, in the ancient world. In fact, that term is uh, more or less... Used in in Psalm eighty two, and I'm going to try to bring it up here, so I'm not calling it, calling it up from memory. It made a lot of sense, and I give credit to Peter Goodgame. I uh, was basically just d- digging into the internet back in uh, uh, 2004, 2005, looking looking for anything I could find that helped make more sense of the Nephilim. I mean, they they had to be in the Bible for some reason. If the Bible is the the Word of God, and you've got this weird section that describes these mighty men who were of old in just four verses and then you get another brief reference in numbers chapter 13 the the point of the divine council concept is that the spirit realm is a lot more active and a lot more a lot richer than than we've been taught in in our churches uh, most american christians don't believe that satan is a literal entity they think he's a concept or a force or a symbol of the evil that exists in human hearts uh, the Holy Spirit, just a symbol of God's love, not a real entity. Uh, demons, eh, you know, we, we haven't dealt with them since the first century. They they kind of left us alone after the apostolic age. That, that's kind of the view that most American Christians have, but that's not the view of the early church. And I think we do them a disservice It's really condescending of us in the 21st century to say, well, you know, (laughs) these apostles who were learning at the feet of Jesus, they really didn't quite understand the theology the way we do today in the 21st century. How arrogant is that? that? That the apostles who were writing about things like principalities and powers and thrones and dominions, referring to literal evil intelligences who want to harm us and saying, well, yeah, but they didn't really know. They were superstitious. They were primitive. They they didn't have science and technology. We've been blinded by science. We think that we can solve everything with science, and many of us in the Christian church are guilty of that. And, you know, I'm the same way. I mean, you're raised up in America today with the idea that science has the answer to everything, that the only means of finding the truth the only method of finding the actual capital t truth is through science but science as it's taught to us begins with the presumption that if you can't see it measure it somehow with our human senses even with the use of instruments that we can then translate into signals that we can perceive sight sound whatever with our human senses it doesn't exist but we know that's observably untrue i mean how do you quantify a thought or measure an emotion We know they exist, but you can't see them or measure them. And yet we're willing to say that God does not exist because we cannot perceive him with our human senses or the instruments that we can create with which we, you know, point at the stars or whatever. It is a a fundamentally flawed worldview. And for Christians, it should be absolutely ridiculous. Our default setting should be a supernatural worldview. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence And literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we are not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm. Even though his word tells us that they do. The the term the divine counsel is found in Psalm 82. And this is something that Mike Heiser will point to and say when he was a young man. This is what really set him on his course of research. Because it's absolutely mind-blowing when you consider the implications here. This is essentially a courtroom scene in the heavenly realm. Psalm 82, beginning at verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, in Hebrew, that's Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. The word Elohim, like deer or sheep, is singular or plural depending on context. And clearly, one cannot take one's place in the midst of oneself. So Elohim has taken the place in the midst of the Elohim, midst of the gods. Well, who are these gods? The Jews of the ancient world understood. The disciples and apostles understood. They were the, what we would call angels in English, who made up his heavenly court. We even see an example of this in 1 Kings 22, which is the story of God talking to his council, his court, And asking, how are we going to deceive Ahab into going into battle against the Syrians so that he may fall in battle? And one spirit says one thing and another says another. And finally, one speaks up and says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets and will deceive him. And and God says, you will do so and you will succeed. Go forth and, you know, go ahead and do it. Now, did God need any advice? No, of course not. Why, did God, why does God have a council if he doesn't need it? He created them, the angelic realm, the inhabitants of the angelic realm, for his own pleasure, the same way he created you and me. He doesn't need us either. And yet here we are having this conversation. And when you continue on through Psalm 82, you see God decreeing the death of the gods, which, again, is a mind-blowing concept. This is not polytheism. But it's an understanding that the ancient Jews had. It's, a, it's an understanding that the first century church had. The early church fathers had this same understanding. It wasn't until about the time of uh, Augustine in the early 5th century that uh, the church began to move away from this idea that there were other small g gods in the spirit realm. And uh, you know th- that has kind of led to where we are today. Now, what I'm expressing with this uh, this view, this divine council Worldview is not the uh, default setting for most seminaries today. Most of our pastors come out believing that there is one God, and yes, one capital G God is correct. But we English speakers attach a certain meaning to that three letter word, G O D, that was not the way it was understood 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. The authors of the book, Writing Under the Influence of the Holy Spirit, had a different understanding of the concept of small g-o-d, than we do. And all that Mike is encouraging us to do, all that Sharon and I are hoping to uh, encourage people to do and teach people to do is try to see the world through the eyes of the men who wrote the words of the Bible under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, they might know a thing or two.
0: Derek, even when we look into like, you know, the ancient Greek culture, all the way from Africa to Northern Europe, the Middle East, Asia, the American Indians, they all have carvings etched right into the rock depicting battles and encounters with chimeras. And we see it written all over history. It's amazing. So what is the connection between these ancient mythological creatures with the bible i mean how would you you know express what the greeks were were dealing with and writing about now how does it all kind of intertwine together with the word of god
2: well that was really the uh, the reason i wrote the book last clash of the titans uh, again getting back to the idea of the nephilim and uh their the term by which they were referred to later uh rephaim in the in the course of researching my first book the uh, the great inception i, I started just Searching through academic papers, looking for references to the Rephaim just to see if there were other cultures around the ancient Hebrews who knew what those things were. Uh, the, the Rephaim are mentioned uh, a little bit in uh, Deuteronomy and in uh, Joshua. I think there's a reference. In, there's a reference in Genesis as well. Uh, the The War of the Nine Kings, the five who come from the east to do battle against the uh, uh, the four kings, um, Sodom, Gomorrah, and their allies. And they have to defeat Rephaim tribes in the Transjordan, the lands later called uh, Ammon and Moab and Edom, on the way down to uh, the region around the Dead Sea. So the Rephaim were known to the Hebrews, but did Moses just make them up to try to demonize, so to speak, the people that the Israelites were going to push out of the land of Canaan? Well, it turns out, no, the Rephaim were known and not only known to the Canaanites, but they were venerated, worshipped by the Canaanites. And there's evidence going back to the time of Abraham that uh, in northern Syria, uh, the Amorites, who, by the way, that's almost interchangeable with Canaanite. The uh, Canaanites were just Amorites who lived in the western part of uh, ancient Mesopotamia. Um, They understood the role of the Rephaim, who, uh, by the time of Moses and the Israelites, only Og, uh, the the, uh, conquest of Canaan, only Og was the last of the remnant of the Rephaim. But uh, they were venerated by the uh, neighboring Canaanites as uh, these mighty kings who lived in ancient times. Oh, okay. So those mighty men who were of old, the Nephilim, after death in the flood of Noah, their spirits were considered these uh, to have power in the afterlife. They weren't on the level of the great gods like Baal and uh, El and Asherah, but they they still had power to influence. The, uh, the land of the living. And just it, within the last 40 years, there have been several texts from the ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, which is on the uh, Syrian coast, um, Mediterranean, that uh, summon the Rephaim to a ritual meal at the, uh, the sanctuary of El or the threshing floor of El. And by the way, when I'm saying El in this context, this is not el Elion or El Shaddai, meaning Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but El, the creator God of the Canaanites, a different entity altogether. Um, This threshing floor or sanctuary of El or or tabernacle of El is, uh, according to scholars, most likely the summit of Mount Hermon, which if you're familiar with the Genesis 6 account and the uh, parallel account in 1 Enoch, which expands on it, that's uh, where the watchers, the sons of God who saw that the daughters of man were fair, that's where they descended. And made their mutual pact to corrupt humanity by taking wives, mingling their seed with ours, and teaching us things we weren't supposed to know. Um, so these Rephaim are summoned to this ritual meal where it is believed that the name of El, and that's a whole other discussion, just the, the name theology. The name is not just the reputation of the God. There's a power to it. It's like another aspect of his uh uh, of his personhood, the name of El would revivify or resurrect the Rephaim. And these texts literally say that when they're summoned, they mount their chariots, they travel first one day and then another, and then arrive at dawn of the third day. So, th- I mean, that, that to me was mind-blowing. But what was even more astonishing was finding a paper from 1999 by the Estonian scholar Amar Anus. A-M-A-R-A-N-N-U-S. He's done some remarkable and Mike Kaiser will, you know, he's the one who pointed me in, in his direction. Uh, Amar Anus has done some incredible research in this area. He showed that the origin of the Greek term used to describe the men who lived during the Golden Age when Kronos ruled in heaven. Okay, now Kronos was the king of the Titans. The Titans were the old gods of the Greeks who were overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians and then cast down to Tartarus where they are... Uh, banished. And, you know, people might remember the movies Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans and Percy Jackson and the Olympians and how Kronos is the bad guy. You don't want to let him out of Tartarus because he's really mean and uh, would be dangerous to set him free. Well, yeah, that's that's true. True enough. Um, this uh, term that applied to these men who lived in this pre-flood era when Kronos ruled in heaven, Merope's Anthropoi. Okay, Anthropoi is... You know, a reference to humans, you know, anthropological as the it comes from that word. but Marapes is the term that Homer and Hesiod, the two Greek poets, wrote a lot of what we know about Greek mythology, actually their religion. That word, Mare, actually derives from the same Semitic root from which we get Rephaim. And he established oh, wow. that, so the Greek understanding of their heroes, the demigods of the golden age, The pre-flood age when Kronos ruled in heaven derives from Rephaim. Like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then he takes it a step further and shows that the origin of the name Titan in Greek, for which there really has not been a satisfactory explanation, derives in all probability from the name of an ancient Amorite tribe called the Tadanu which are well attested in Mesopotamian history. The Tadanu were known in the middle of the third millennium BC. So we're talking 24, 2500 BC. The Sumerians were afraid of them, considered them a threat. They were wild, dangerous. They lived out in the open, they ate raw meat, They didn't, uh, uh, didn't live in proper houses like you know, nice civilized Sumerians did. Uh, when they were buried, they didn't have proper graves. And and, and in fact, the last Sumerian kings to rule over Mesopotamia, what scholars call the Third Dynasty of Ur, who ruled between about 2100 and about 2000 BC, just about the time Abraham was born. They actually built a wall near modern Baghdad, 175 miles long, to keep out the Tadanu. And and we know this because they found inscriptions that describe the name of the wall as, literally, the Amorite Wall that keeps the Tadanu away. (laughs) The problem for the last Sumerian kings of Mesopotamia is that it didn't keep the Tadanu away. And around 2000 BC, their kingdom fell. There was a hundred years of kind of a dark period. And then suddenly by 1900 BC, about the time that Abraham was making his way towards Canaan, roughly, uh all of these amorite kingdoms were in control of everything in ancient mesopotamia from what is now western iran to southern turkey to even northern egypt was under the control of amorites and uh the chief god of course being well their creator god el the chief god baal the storm god known to the greeks as zeus and uh the rest of the pantheon um so th- 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 this is, what, is and what has really been astonishing for me to learn is that over the last 40 or 50 years now, uh, it's just that recently that scholars have begun to realize, yeah, you, you know, there was this cult of the dead that venerated the Rephaim all around ancient Israel. And in fact, it even lured in the Israelites. Well, that was the point of the book Sharon and I wrote a year ago called Veneration, on how this veneration of the dead in other words, the spirits of the dead, Nephilim, was a snare that drew Israel in even before they crossed the Jordan River to attack the city of Jericho. And how that was still a problem 700 years later when when uh, Isaiah was condemning Israelites for eating forbidden food like uh, pork and in, and eating amongst the tombs where they were practicing these rituals. And we go into some detail about the Amorite rituals that have been attested going back to 23, 2400 BC. It was a snare, but we also showed then this with this connecting paper, really central to the whole thing, Amar Anus and that uh, paper showing how the Greeks and their demigods were really just their understanding of the Rephaim that were venerated by the ancient Amorites and the Canaanites. So Heracles, Heracles, Uh, Perseus, Theseus, Bellerophon, Cadmus, all of them, by definition, were Nephilim. And the veneration of the heroes, the way they practiced it, was very similar to the rituals that the Amorites practiced with ritual meals held at the tombs where they were summoned by name. And that, as we showed in the book, Veneration, was brought into the Christian church because it was so ingrained in the culture of the people who lived around the Mediterranean that the early Christian church wouldn't give it up. And it was Augustine in the early 5th century who said, you know, the souls and the spirits of the saints can intercede for us in this life. He tried to Christianize the practice. And that's how we get the veneration of saints in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches today. It all goes back to the Rephaim, the Nephilim.
0: So these entities have been behind the scenes all this time, like meandering through and kind of like showing up in the secular culture as well to influence things and cause confusion. Uh, It's
2: crazy to hear. It sounds crazy, but when you start looking at this and realizing that uh, the information on which we are basing our conclusions is peer reviewed secular research from archeologists and epigraphers who study these ancient texts, you can't reach another conclusion. This is not internet level research. And I don't, you know, belittle internet research because that's what got me started down this whole thing. But in order to make sure that we got the right conclusions, we wanted to go beyond, Absolutely. you know, stuff that I found at somebody's website or, or what have you show me the work of the archeologist. What does this text actually mean? How does this connect to that? And when you, when you, start piecing the puzzle together, the picture becomes clear that, yes, these entities have been interfering in human in human history since the beginning. Uh, and, and Mike Heiser explains it in his book, The Unseen Realm, which if your listeners haven't read it, they really need to as foundational to all of this. I'm on the edge of my seat right now, just listening. I'm
0: like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so real quick, I want to ask you about this, Derek, in the Psalms where Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he goes on to say, and strong bulls of Bashan have encompassed around me. Mm -hmm. The bulls of Bashan, are they also in reference to the spirits of the Nephilim? Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Bashan was the region to the south and southeast of Mount Hermon. And it was known in the ancient world as literally the entrance to the netherworld. Um, We knew that this was the case, but uh, Sharon and I stumbled onto some information from the Israel Archaeological Association or the Antiquities Authority, that's what I'm looking for, the IAA, the Israel Antiquities Authority, on the locations of dolmens in uh, the Golan Heights. Now, dolmens are are megalithic funerary monuments that are made out of really, really big stones. A lot of them are just a simple trilithon construction where you get two big slabs of stone standing vertically parallel to one another, and then like a tabletop across the top. Um, Looks like a real simple version of uh, you know Stonehenge. Put a bunch of them in a circle, you'd have something like Stonehenge. Well, there are more of them concentrated in a smaller area in the Jordan River Valley than pretty much anywhere on Earth. I guess Korea actually has more dolmens than the, uh, uh, than the Jordan Valley, but uh, from the Dead Sea up to Mount Hermon, there are something like 25,000 dolmens that have been found so far, and 5,000 of them alone on the Golan. Well, the, the Israel Antiquities Authority has a map of the location of these dolmen fields. And uh, when you look at the map and just plot the red dots out on a uh, on Google Earth, it's like there's this big cluster of red just to the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Like, mm-hmm. Okay, now what what is that about? Um, and then you start cross-referencing that with some of these texts that have been translated just within the last 40 years from this ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit. And you find that in one of the stories... This is the, called the Epic of Akat, A-Q-H-A-T. Uh, Akat is a young hero who uh, uh, is the uh, son of the king, whose name is Daniel, interestingly. And uh, he's he's given this this really awesome bow by the craftsman god. Uh, and the war goddess, Anat, decides that she wants it. So she asks him for it and he says, no, I don't think so. It's similar to the way the uh, in the Gilgamesh epic he refuses the advances of the goddess Inanna, and Anat is is kind of an aspect of Inanna who is like the goddess of sex and war. Um, so he refuses to give her the bow. So she conspires and has uh, some other entity uh, kill him, and the father grieves. And uh, in this epic, you read that uh, when I find him, I will grieve for him. I will bury him in a hole with the gods of the earth and the gods of the earth in hebrew it's uh, uh eretz elohim now it's written not written in hebrew but that's the cognate for the uh, ugaritic uh, but what he's referring to bury him in a in a hole in the earth or a tomb in the earth with the gods of the earth he's referring to the rephaim so he searches and he he repeats this this uh, formula like three times and finally he finds the remains of his son and says i will bury him in a tomb with the gods of the earth or for the gods of the earth at Kinneret. Well, Kinneret is the Sea of Galilee. So there's this understanding, and this this text written about the time of the judges um, shows that even in northern Syria, near the border of Turkey, there was an understanding among people in the time of the judges that there was something special about burial for special persons who wanted to join the the assembly of the Rephaim after death. These, uh, uh, you know, powerful entities, not as powerful as the big gods, but still, you know, powerful enough uh, that they would be buried at the Sea of Galilee in the land of Bashan. Like, all right, well, that's really curious. Uh, Again, remembering that Mount Hermon was the uh, location of the threshing floor of the tabernacle of El, the creator god of the Canaanites and his uh, assembly. Uh, But at the foot of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi also called Banias or Panias, the Grotto of Pan, which was believed to be, even in ancient times, the literal entrance to the underworld. Our friend Dr. Jud Burton did his uh, doctoral dissertation on the religious history of Panias, and uh, scholars have found inscriptions in Greek that made it pretty clear that some of the sacrifices that were tossed into the cave, because that used to be the origin of, of the river Jordan, it, it has shifted since then because of uh, earthquakes that it was, uh, th- there were human sacrifices that were tossed into the, the water there. And it was believed that if the, uh, the sacrifice sank, it was accepted. But if it didn't, if it just floated, it was rejected by the, the God. Um, so there was something about that area that was believed going back at, you know, more than 3000 years for sure, based on texts that we now have, That something about that whole land from Mount Hermon down to the Sea of Galilee was like a giant necropolis. And again, we've got all of these dolmens that probably date back to, uh, oh, the time of Abraham or earlier. So 2000 BC, maybe even earlier. And then when you start looking at some of the other weird stuff that we've stumbled across there, I mean, Gilgal Rephaim, which is uh, what's called Israel's Stonehenge, except that it's older and bigger than Stonehenge you know, the concentric rings, circles at uh, about 20 miles south of Mount Hermon. You can see Mount Hermon plainly on the northern horizon from Gilgal Rephaim. Uh, the scholar who's done the most recent excavation there, Dr. Michael Freakman, said that in all likelihood, this was part of a prehistoric cult of the dead. Okay. So, and, wow. and his most recent dating uh, <clears throat> pushes the, the construction of this back to probably about 3750 B.C., So now, okay, Abraham, roughly 2,900 BC, okay? That's when we start getting into historic biblical territory. Go back to 3,750 BC, possibly as far back as 4,000 BC, and you've got this huge monument engineered and and built just for a cult of the dead. I mean, this thing is 500 feet across, uh, something like uh, 40,000 tons of stone, Compared to Stonehenge, which has got about twenty-five thousand tons of stone, what's even more interesting is that when Dr. Freakman was excavating there back in 2012, they found an older wall um, outside the uh, the area of Gilgal uh, of the the actual circle itself, Gilgal Refaim, outside the outer ring, which apparently had been dismantled to build Gilgal Refaim itself. So there was something else even older on that location but what blew us away was after we got back from our tour of Israel in uh, 2019 and uh, I decided to look at the area in in Google Earth I wanted to determine the direction of the gates because there are two gates that enter into this maze one in the one to the northeast one to the southeast and I noticed a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Refaim was this long serpent shaped ridge about a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Rephaim. I was like, Sharon, can you come here and take a look at this and see if I'm imagining things? She said, that looks like a snake. I was like, well, yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? So I remembered I had seen an academic paper about Gilgal Rephaim with a map on it that plotted out the locations of all of the dolmens and uh, burial cairns, these, these megalithic tombs that date back to this period of history, 3500 to 4000 BC. And lo and behold, all of the the, the tombs in that area are clustered with a few exceptions, but they're clustered on the back of this three quarter of a mile long serpent shaped ridge. Now, interesting. Why would they do that? Now, is this ridge natural? Well, most scholars believe that it is, that it was just like a big blob of lava that, that hit the earth in a weird shape and cooled there. But it's 20 to 25 feet high. It's about 3,700 feet long, three-quarters of a mile, which means that it is about three times longer and about four or five times higher than the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio. And it's covered with 130 dolmens and about a dozen megalithic cairns, which are just big piles of rock under which somebody was buried. Um Dated to that same period of history and maybe a little earlier in <laughs> what Dr. Freakman uh, said was the, the thing that's really bizarre is that at some point around 3,500 BC or thereabouts, there, there were a few dwellings on the back of this. Maybe, I don't know, the caretakers for the property. I don't know. But all of these uh, burial, to- these tombs and cairns are on the back of this thing. None of them on the low ground between it, the quarter mile between it and Gilgal Rephaim. Um, at some point, they knocked in the the they appeared the to have knocked in the roofs of these houses that they were dwelling in blocked up the doors broke all of the uh, the the basalt utensils that they used in the home like bowls and things like this just broke them and then set the whole thing on fire and then buried it and then left and was not resettled nobody knows why absolutely weird now what does this have to do with the bible and biblical narrative We're just saying, look, uh, we got this long serpent-shaped thing covered with tombs a quarter of a mile north of this big site for venerating the dead within eyesight of Mount Hermon in the middle of a place called Bashan. And, oh, yes, the word Bashan in Hebrew is a cognate, which means same word, different language, for the Ugaritic word Bathan, which means serpent. In other words, Og uh-huh. of Bashan was ruling over a land that was literally called Place of the Serpent. And now, if you want to get into Revelation, what's even more strange is this. There was a, a myth in ancient Ak- Akkad, um, you know, the land of Sargon the Great, going back to probably 2600 BC. Now, l- bearing in mind that that was uh, probably, what, 1200 years, 1300 years after this uh, long serpent-shaped ridge was abandoned, okay? Uh, there is a, uh, an inscription, a, a, a piece of artwork that's on display at, uh, where is it? The Bible Lands Museum in, in Jerusalem, maybe. But anyway, it depicts the, uh, the hero, warrior god Ninurta, battling a seven-headed serpent. And uh, one of the heads, by the way, seems to have suffered a mortal head wound, <laughs> For anyone who's familiar with Revelation chapter 13, that should ring a bell. But what's fascinating is that the t- the name of that seven-headed serpent in ancient Akkad is Bashmu. Bashmu is the Akkadian form of Bathan or Bashan. So you got this seven-headed serpent that had to be defeated by the warrior god in order to create... Order out of chaos because that seven headed serpent was just another name for Tiamat or Leviathan, the chaos dragon. <laughs> and, and its name was Bashmu or Bashan. So Og of Bashan. Is it a coincidence that when Moses and the Israelites not arrived, <laughs> their first military target <laughs> was not Jericho? It was Og of Bashan. Yes. Oh my God. I know it's mind blowing. We're, we're going to write a book next year. It's uh, in, in fact it, well, it may have been pushed back cause we pitched another idea to Tom Horn. Uh, but we, we plan to write a book simply on, um, this, this, this story of the uh, primordial serpent representing chaos that had to be defeated. Um, and certainly this, this mound in Bashan will be part of it, but, uh, it, that will probably factor into another book that we're writing next year anyway. Um, on that whole region and the supernatural connections along the Jordan river.
0: As I sit here and just listen, I'm, I'm enamored. <laughs> uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. You covered so many things tonight. I'm really excited for the audience to hear this episode. I hope maybe next year I can have you back.
2: Love to, I I love to learn and I, you know, credit my mother, you know, God bless her. Mm-hmm. She's 83 years old and still with us. And uh, every chance I, I I want to take every chance There's I chance, yeah. have while she's still with us to give her the credit for teaching me to read and to love it and teaching me to learn and to love learning. Um, But more than that, she was a school teacher in her younger days, you know, one room schoolhouse in the middle of North Dakota um, decided she didn't like the winters there and moved. But uh, anyway, that spirit, that, that love of teaching too, I think has been passed down to me. So, uh, you know, when I get opportunities to talk for people who enjoy hearing the things that I'm excited about, uh, happy to do it anytime.
0: Well, any last words you want to say to the audience before we uh, wind down to the end of the episode
2: here? I, I know that a lot of us have been looking at the uh, the presidential election here, and it's really easy to get very angry about what has gone on. Um, I, I think anybody who thinks clearly and is not overly biased one way or the other can say, yeah, there are real inconsistencies here. It is just highly, highly improbable to the point of impossibility that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that the man who's likely to be inaugurated January 2020th is is was actually the winner of this election but the one thing we need to remember is that in all things you know January 21st of 2021 no matter who is inaugurated god will still be on the throne but we know as jesus told the apostles that he has gone on ahead of us to prepare a place in his father's house there are many mansions and if it weren't so he would have told us God is still in control, and if he's allowing this, it's only because he's getting ready to do something, something perhaps even more incredible than we can imagine. So we are to keep in the word, keep praying, and then stand back and marvel at what God is about to do.
0: Well, that's it. That's the show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this with Derek Gilbert what an excellent episode. If you found this episode, just helped you look at things different and got you on the road to digging deeper into God's word. I ask you to share this with a friend coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania. God bless America and good night.